0: Turn in your Bibles to Ezra chapter 1, Ezra 1, page 374, if you are using the uh, Bibles we provide, 374. Last week we began to study this uh, book, and it's about how God is starting a new season in the life of His people, Israel. Things are going to be drastically different for His people because of what's happening here in this book that we're studying. And I'll bet you that you can think through the last 10 years, and right now you're in a different season than you were 10 years ago. Something changed, didn't it? Probably some significant movements in your life, and you see God working differently in your life now than maybe 10 years ago. Seasons change quite quickly. And often they can become a turning point for us spiritually. Seasons are going to change whether we are alert spiritually or not. I mean, it's like, it's like fall coming, it's going to happen. But will the change of season in your life become something that God uses to impact you or perhaps to use you for impact is the real question. As we open up the book of Ezra, let's get a little bit of a perspective or context, uh, a little bit in history and geography. So the nation of Israel is about there, and um, in 605 BC, the first of three waves of Jews were exiled, deported by the conquering Babylonians, and taken Over the Fertile Crescent to the land of Babylon. Well, in the coming years, some 50 to 70 years, uh, Babylon lost their hold as the dominant world power empire, and the Persians took over, but the people of Israel are still, for the most part, deported there. So that is life for them. What we're seeing in the book of Ezra is that now God has a plan to bring them back to the nation, back to the homeland, a restoration and a spiritual turning point for them. Because God had promised through the prophet Jeremiah that this was going to happen. He had promised that they were going to be deported because of the discipline of the, for their sin, and he promised that he would bring them back after 70 years. So the context here in verse 1 is that in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and put it in writing. So God has moved in the heart of a foreign and pagan king who otherwise did not know God personally. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem. Think of this, a pagan king building a temple for Israel. Any one of his people among you, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel. The God who is in Jerusalem. So there is a significant movement in the heart of Cyrus to say, you guys can go back. And the people of any place where survivors may now be living are to provide him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. So you're kind of caught up, if you weren't with us this week, last week, you're kind of caught up on what has happened. The king has said, you are free to go. And, in fact, you are urged to go to do what? To rebuild the temple of God. So this is an amazing turning point and opportunity for the nation. Did the people of Israel have to go? No. You may go. Do you see how suddenly every Jew that's in Babylon, now called Persia, has a decision to make? What does God want me to do? Something has drastically changed. What do I do? What does God want me to do? So, verse 5, Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin... Those are the two tribes that were part of the southern kingdom, if you are with us in our study of, of uh, First and Second Kings. They're the ones who were deported, the heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved or stirred, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. This is the same term used in verse 1, where God moved or stirred the heart of Cyrus. You know, God has access to your heart. God can move a king who didn't even know him personally, and God can move those who do know him personally. The word moved here is actually a a word that means like waking somebody up, stirred. It's sometimes used of waking up somebody, you know, you're startled. You ever try to wake up a teenager, you know, when they're really into it? You know, it takes a little while. You've got to shake them a little bit. It can mean stirred or agitated. Agitated because you're angry or even agitated uh, with romantic feelings. It is, it is a movement of the heart. God stirred their hearts. When you think back to Cyrus, it's a little bit different because he's an unbeliever, but how did God move Cyrus's heart? We talked about this last week a bit. Daniel 6.28 says that Daniel served under Cyrus. Daniel had served, first of all, I guess, back in, uh, he was under the king Jehoiakim back in Israel. He was in the first wave of those who were exiled. He's that teenager, Daniel 1, who serves under Nebuchadnezzar. And also Daniel 6.28 says he served when there was this transition, Darius and then Cyrus. And so it is quite possible that serving under Cyrus, Daniel has shown him the prophecies of Jeremiah, the prophecies of Isaiah that say there's going to be a a, a group that needs to go back to Israel and rebuild the temple. And so there is this favorable disposition in the heart of Cyrus. He says, well, I need to send them back. And we saw last week it's also kind of a different philosophy or policy in terms of international affairs that Cyrus had. So really, God perhaps moved Cyrus's heart through his word. If Daniel shared his word, it was moved through the Word of God. Well, how did the, uh, the hearts of Israel, the Jews or Jews, uh, get stirred? They had access to the same scriptures. They knew Jeremiah, they knew Isaiah. And so when the circumstance changed, the season was changed, they could look at the Word of God and say, oh, this is maybe something God is moving in my heart. But in either case, it seems that what really happens so that people are stirred or moved by God is that He uses His Word. It's a knowledge of the Word of God. Seasons can come through our life and we could ignore what God is doing and and so basically as the seasons are changing we're just kind of adrift in the circumstances oh this has changed oh my kids are moving away or this is happening and, and it changes without us acknowledging God or if we are in the word of God and we are asking for God's wisdom then these transitions have significance and we go hmm what is God doing in my life now? is there some New commitment that He is leading me towards? Is there some opportunity? Is there something I'm supposed to be learning? Something I'm supposed to be doing? Something, sometimes, something I'm supposed to be accepting. But to see God woven into the fabric of our changing seasons takes a person who is listening and under the authority of God's Word. Uh, Many of the Jews who heard this decree of Cyrus had never been in Israel because it had been 50 to 70 years depending on which time you came and so most of these adults were actually born in Persia. So the heralds come from Cyrus' couriers, they post it, they they explain that you can go back and and suddenly the the marketplace is abuzz with these conversations and and family dinner tables and, and, and husbands and wives are talking and should we go with our family? We have permission. We have purpose to rebuild the temple of our parents and grandparents. We have the promises of God that we were supposed to We have the prophecies that it's going to be successful, we're going to go back and do this, should I be involved. Sometimes what stands in the way of doing what we know God wants us to do is, will I have the money to do so? What did um, Cyrus say though? The people of any place where survivors may now be living are to provide him with silver and gold and goods and livestock and free will offerings. How is that going to work out? Well, jump down to verse uh, uh, 6. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold and goods and livestock and valuable gifts in addition to the free will offerings. When God guides, he provides as well. And you can only imagine what they would all need. This journey uh, would take them four months, approximately, about 900 miles and we'll see later in our study today, it comprised a group of almost 50,000 people. Imagine moving that size group. It's about the size of the Sheboygan population. So they all have to move. There's going to be a lot of need for, for vegetables and livestock, for meat along the way. And when they get to the homeland and go back into uh, maybe abandoned houses where they were from, they're going to need pots and water basins. And they're supposed to rebuild the temple with what? With tools. If if you picture the old Western wagon train, that's a little bit more of of what this this picture would be like. Where would that all come from? Well, evidently, God not only stirred the people who were to go, he stirred the hearts of the people who were to give. Uh, Some have thought in verse uh, 6 that these neighbors were non-Jews that did it simply out of obedience to the decree. And it could well have been. Cyrus says, give them stuff, I'm going to give them stuff. But this term, uh, free will offerings, that's a a Hebrew term that takes us back to the law, where in, in addition to the tithes and the sacrifices that were required, they were also to give free will offerings. Because throughout all of God's history with his people, there has always been this core element that giving is something God stirs within you. They gave of their free will as well. So, who's going to go? Who's going to stay? It it may help us to realize what the conditions or circumstances were in Persia. Uh, When you think of them, taken off in chains and some of them you read in Second Kings the king's eyes were the sons were put out and, and it, it's very cruel to begin with but what really did life become in Babylon they were not in prison they weren't caged if you will in fact here's what we find in uh, Jeremiah 29 that uh, Jeremiah sent them a letter The exiles. Jeremiah did not go to uh, Babylon, now called Persia. But here's what he told them. Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Build houses, live in them, plant gardens, and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons, multiply there, and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile so they were to prosper and they were to help the babylonians prosper they were they were very very good immigrants for the nation uh, that they were in for thus says the lord when 70 years are completed for babylon i will visit you i will the term means to intervene i'm going to step in i'm going to i'm going to create that turning point for you i'm going to visit and i will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place so they had that in writing God's promise. They were to go there and experience life. Just just live. So they prospered. They had houses. They had gardens. They had livelihoods. It wasn't a slam-dunk decision. Well, they, Cyrus says we can go. We need to go. Some were not interested in going for some reason. Some were not stirred by God to go. My homeland, if you will, as most of you know, is Kansas. I'm not stirred to go back. My kids aren't stirred to go back. It's great to go there and see the family and relatives, but they don't have that desire to go and and, and live in Kansas. You say, yeah, you understand that, right? Um, I can't say it was God's will for all of them to go, but it does say it was God's will for some, everyone, verse 5, whose heart God had stirred. God stirs in our heart when we know that God is at work. Last week we looked at these principles of how do you know that God's at work? There might be seasons when you kind of are, things are unchanged, and then how do you recognize that there's something that perhaps God has for you? Is it God-focused? His glory, not mine. What were they going to do in Israel? Build a temple. It was focused on God, is it based on god 's word is it is it in harmony with the Word of God? Well, yeah, Jeremiah, Isaiah, and others had talked about you 're going to go back, okay, it fits the Word of God, and then do circumstances and godly people confirm this is the right thing and the right time well suddenly the the proclamations were nailed to the to the town square. Uh, announcement board or something and and there was this unique circumstance. So as people thought about going back, they could they could think biblically and say, yes, this is very likely what I might what God might be asking me to do. But we didn't know for sure because some stayed. Some stayed and gave, some went and 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 I'm picked up their whole family and moved. You see, even though the proclamation had been made. People had to make decisions. And I want us to think through a little bit why decision making can be hard for us. I think there's two reasons why Christians struggle to make decisions on you know, practical A or B kind of choices. Are decisions hard for you because you don't want to do what you know God wants you to do? That's one reason. Sometimes decisions are hard because our heart is set on X. And so if, if we sense a movement of God that we should do Y, the real battle is, I don't want what God wants. I, I've, I've, I've planned this. This, this, is, this, is, this is me. This is what I Sometimes that's the reason decisions are hard. Or sometimes it's because I am willing, but I just don't know what God wants us to do. I would urge you to think carefully about which one of these describes you. Because it's an incredible blessing to settle that you're on number two, not number one. It greatly simplifies decision-making when you know you are willing to do what God wants you to do. Because something that is... that is. Uh, Motivated, you know, out of something that is not not holy. Something's motivated. If if it's, it's my greed, it's my pride, it's my. We can we can right away say you know what if that's my reason, I need to hesitate. So if we settle the issue that you want what God wants you to do, then you can make the right decision, and that's where your. Personal relationship with the Lord really comes to bear. We as Christians often talk about uh, having a personal relationship with God or Christ as our personal Savior, and, and that's very true. And so in the Gospel of John, when you're, you, you read that the way you get to heaven is by whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Whoever puts their faith in what Christ accomplished on the cross and the empty tomb has eternal life. But John 1.12 1 is so exciting when it says, To those who believed on him, he gave the right to be called what? Sons. Children of God. And so we really are in the family of God the moment we believe our relationship changes. So it has the potential to be very personal. But you see, some Christians live more or less personally in relationship with the Lord. It can be true for you, and yet not really be real for you. It's kind of like if you had a, uh, one or the other parent that you didn't hardly ever live with or didn't really interact with. It's not very personal. You have a person. That's my dad. That's my mom. But it could be that you don't really connect personally. So how do you do that? How does a relationship become personal? How does your relationship with God become personal? The same way as you do with people. Do you interact with them? Do you have a line of communication that you talk and you understand each other? We learn to be personally Connected to God through talking to Him and listening to Him. Communication. That's what a relationship is. I'll bet if you're married, I bet, as situations arise, you can almost always know what your spouse thinks. Oh, she's not going to like that. or Oh, he's going to really like this, or whatever it might be. Don't, don't you have that where you, you, you've, you've lived together you've visited you've, your life's been so intertwined that you already know intrinsically what they want is that possible with God? if we have been consistently in his word and prayerful and connected and thinking about our relationship with him the word of God will begin to inform our instincts even oh this is something that God would have me to do. This is something God would not have me to do. So, many times, many times, we will have that figured out just because of our relationship personally with God. Yet, sometimes, we don't know. So some stayed in Persia. Some stayed in Persia. And let's just think through some of the legitimate and then some of the more selfish reasons why some may have stayed. If... Uh, if you're 85 years old and using some ancient Hebrew form of a walker, you probably aren't going to go back on this 900 mile journey, are you? Okay? So that could be it. Same thing with your kids. Your kids, are two, you just had a baby. You know, there's all kinds of reasons. Practically, this trip, this, this call to go to, to Israel is not for you. It could be that some sense that God was using them in Persia. Daniel didn't go back. Daniel's being used by God in the government of Persia. His place was right there. It could be that there were some synagogue leaders. See, synagogues, the gathering of believers, it's really can, can be traced back to the time that they were in exile because being so far away from the temple, they couldn't go to the temple, obviously, to worship. So sincere believers said, well, we still need to get together. We still need to, have, have to, to pray for one another. We still need to have, have the, the Torah, the scriptures read to us because not everybody had six versions on their app. So everybody had to go to somewhere to hear the few scarce copies of the word of God. And so there was reasons to gather together. So they formed synagogues. If you were a synagogue leader, could you be sure that you were supposed to go? Maybe not. Some sense they should stay, but maybe they weren't even sure why. I mean, a lot of times decisions are like that. Even if you want what God wants, you don't know, so you don't you don't make a move right then. A couple of generations later we come across Mordecai and, and Esther. I'm glad that their parents or grandparents didn't go. Because they were in Persia for such a time as that. And God if you know this if you've read the, the story of Esther in the Old Testament, you know that was a very, very important. And some may be sensed, you know what, this isn't for me to do. I'm not supposed to go. I'm supposed to give to this project. And they're the ones in verse 6 who were doing that. On the other hand, it could be that some had selfish reasons. Jeremiah said, prosper. And they did. And they were not about to give that up. They had businesses going and, and customers and deadlines. And so they said, we're not doing that. And it could have just been that it's just a selfish reason comfort how far is it I don't feel called at all to go that far and travel that journey could be could be that some were spiritually passive over the intervening years it's kind of like that was my grandpa's thing I've heard about that Worship is not a big deal to me. I'm not going to go back and, and work on that project. I've got my own life here. So there could be all kinds of legitimate or selfish reasons, but I don't doubt that for some they were supposed to go, but prosperity could have gotten in the way. But many did. And So I kind of picture, as we come to chapter 2, and you see all these families who went, that there were, there were these discussions that would bring one family to go and one family not to go. So maybe there was a a family where these now 20, 30, 40-year-olds had grown up in a home where mom and dad talked with uh, tremendous passion about what it was like to go to the temple and worship. They talked with with a sense of sincere loss of the the spiritual uh, downward spiral that they had experienced back in the nation. And they were praying for and longing for the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy to go back. And so we got these 20 or 30 year olds. They grew up in that home with that example of their parents. These are the parents probably who were sure to get together in the synagogue worship. Because they longed to hear the word of God. They longed to be with the people of God. And so you see God working in this whole family uh, system. These are parents who knew the Word of God that, that though they couldn't have a scroll in their own home, when they heard some scribe reading it, it's like they just took it to heart and went to talk to their kids and says, let's let's, 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 let's memorize this. We should be able to say this. And so some of these, these young adults or middle-aged adults grew up with that kind of an environment and God stirred in their heart and says, we want to do that. There were other ones though who... Maybe their parents were passive. Maybe their parents just didn't care. And so you see, there was an advantage or a disadvantage. Or it could be simply that there was someone whose, their, 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 their cousin's parents had that desire, and so God stirred in their hearts. Do we realize how much we impact one another? That our walk with Christ, our desire, our priority for spiritual things is impacting our children, our grandchildren the people we are in, in a Bible study with, it's contagious <laughs> to walk with God. Just as, as sin certainly seems contagious, right? To, to have a passion to follow the Lord is contagious as well. So families decided. Um, as, we, as we just try to process this for ourselves, you may not know every decision, come fall you know you get involved in this or that if it's a church thing or there's certain people you know that, that God might want to have you involved and you should have them go out for coffee there's but have you made that first decision I, am, I want to do what God wants me to do and so that you have a sensitivity that the Lord can stir in your heart and it's okay sometimes that you're not going to do something that you thought about doing Maybe maybe the grandparents of Nehemiah thought about it, but for some reason just did not have peace to go. So they stayed there, and, and their grandson, Nehemiah, would also have a high government position someday, and Nehemiah would come back to build the wall. So we don't always know, and that's the point. You cannot judge the way God is stirring in someone else's heart. Sometimes I think as Christians, you know, God is stirring, and this is so passionate, and, and we want to tell everybody they should get involved in this thing, and then... They're not interested. Is that okay? It could be. It's not for them. God isn't stirring in their heart. He's stirring in your heart. So we have to give a lot of grace and not assume that we know exactly what God is supposed to be doing in every situation. And then to be so wonderfully, pleasantly surprised when the person we least expected to be interested also says, "I want to be a part of that." If you've been a, involved in ministry very long or if you've been a ministry leader, you, you know that you, you see all varieties of those things happening. Now there's one more indication here in this, in this chapter of how God was at work, verse 7. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar, from the previous uh, world power, had carried away from Jerusalem and, ha- and had placed in the temple of his God. Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought out to Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And then there's the uh, inventory of of what came. Here's the backstory of that. In the first deportation, Daniel 1-2 tells us, The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his, that's Nebuchadnezzar's hand, with some of the vessels of the house of God and he brought them to the land of Shinar to the house of his God and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God so this is exactly that that's talking about what Ezra uh, 1 verse 7 is referring to how Nebuchadnezzar you could say desecrated these holy objects from the temple and put them in the temple of his God you can be sure God noticed that or in Jeremiah 52, probably referring to the third deportation, and they took away the pots and the shovels and the snuffers and the basins and the dishes, and there's a long list of all the things that in the last uh, time that when they burned the, the, the temple down, pushed it down and, and, and burned all that stuff, they also took a whole bunch more stuff. And so what's happening here is now that King Cyrus says, this is yours. This is yours. God is calling you to go and rebuild the temple. You need to take the temple stuff along with you. And he sends them back. back. Just another uh, confirmation, really, that God was at work. There's a reference here in verse um, 8 to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. It's a little bit of a a mystery. Because later on, we're going to find out that the leader of this entire expedition, 50,000 strong... The leader is Zerubbabel. So who is Sheshbazar, who's only mentioned a couple of times? One option is that Sheshbazar is actually just the Persian name of Zerubbabel, which is a Hebrew name. Daniel had two kinds of names too, one Babylonian and one, one Hebrew. That's a possibility. Uh, the other possibility, I actually lean towards this, is that Sheshbazar was in fact a Persian that King Cyrus had appointed to oversee and accompany this operation so that from a, uh, a governmental standpoint, you have your representative who goes along and actually is involved. And then Zerubbabel, though, on the, on the Jewish side of things, was the one responsible to go and, and uh, construct the temple itself. Either way, um, just a little bit of a mystery. So the first issue we have seen is that God individually had been working in Cyrus and then in the people who went, the people who stayed. God sees every commitment. And when we come to chapter 2, if you glance ahead, what do you see? A whole long list of names. It's one of those places you speed read, right? And that's okay. Why are they there? I think they're there because God is marking the importance of everyone who made this commitment to travel back and help rebuild the temple. Verse 1, Now these are the people of the province who came up from the captivity of the exiles, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken captive to Babylon. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town, in company with, and here's a list of what seems to be leaders, Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, couple other names there's a Nehemiah and a Mordecai there that's not the same as the ones you know from later on that's we're about 70 to 100 years off uh, for it to be them but the two most significant names here we'll, we'll find as we continue in our study is Zerubbabel who is if you will the project manager of this entire operation and then Jeshua who we will find is a priest and they work together so Zerubbabel as a as a godly leader is working alongside and, and with the help and counsel of a spiritual leader um, next comes the list of uh, families descendants of each one and how many came the uh, next is um, cities because the uh, some people will be named by the city they went to. Some are named by the family they went with. Either way, they needed to be tallied, and they needed to be it needed to be written down, so that everybody. Here we are, twenty five hundred years later. We know that these family names were important, and then verses thirty six to forty two, there's mention of the priests and the Levites. Remember I mentioned we had two main tribes, the southern tribes, that were uh, part of the exile and now are returning. But there's a third tribe, the tribe of Levi, because the Levites were not given land to inherit back in Israel. But when they had first conquered the land under Joshua, they were given Levitical cities so that there would be priests who would be representing uh, every area, and going to serve in the temple in Jerusalem. So it's like there was, made sure, God made sure there was like a spiritual influence in all of these tribes. And fortunately, some of those were a part of this as well. So they go back. Um, the temple servants, verses 43 to 54, may well be uh, some non-Jews. There's a story that goes back to Joshua 9 of the Gibeonites, which were some original uh, Canaanites, pagans that were supposed to be destroyed but they, they fooled uh, Joshua and it's an interesting story to go back, Joshua 9 and they were, they, instead of killing them because they had made an oath not to kill them they were instead supposed to be serving in the temple and that's who that could refer to verses 55 to 58 Solomon's servants uh, may after, actually have been descendants of prisoners of war Just some details, but take us take down to uh, verse sixty-two. Really, verse uh, fifty-nine to sixty-two. There were some who didn't know what family they were from. Uh, It says in verse sixty-two, they these searched for their family records, but they could not find them, and so were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. So these are some of the priests who are supposed to be serving in the temple. But there was very uh, specific instructions back in the law that priests only could do that. If you weren't of the priestly tribe of Levi, you can't do it. But you can imagine the chaos and and the tragedy of being taken out of the land and taken to Babylon some 50 to 70 years before. Houses are burnt. It's all chaos. They didn't have family records anymore. So some didn't know. So they were excluded. Verse 63. The governor ordered them not to eat of any of the most sacred food until there was a priest ministering with a Urim and Thummim. So you don't want to do something that you that could be in contrast or in contradicting the word of God. What does that tell you about Zerubbabel? Zerubbabel was a godly leader because he... He wanted to obey the Word of God. If, if you want to think about, are you a spiritual leader or not? There's a very simple, simple concept. Are you committed to obeying the Word of God? You're now a godly leader. You will influence others. If you are committed to, to obeying the Word of God does that mean you'll understand everything no there'll be a lot of times as we've talked about that, that you won't even know for sure what God is maybe leading you to do on various specific issues but do you have the the bottom line commitment to the authority of the Word of God in your life we you know we can look at our society and we know that there is a lot of relativism and the Word of God is uh, of course ignored in so many ways but the most tragic thing but that really is the most tragic change in our society that the, the, the moral foundations are, are no longer there which were based in the authority of the Word of God. That's where the people of God are different. The real tragedy, we would expect the wor- world not to adhere to the Word of God. The real tragedy is when God's people, they go, well, I know the Bible says that, but... If that, if that sequence of, of thought occurs to you, I know the Bible says that, but... That's a dangerous thought. Now, it's a matter of, of interpretation, and, and, and godly people take it this... I, I get that. But do you actually have the thought, I know God says, don't do this, or I know God's word says, do this, but... That's that bottom-line commitment first. Chapter 2 then has basically been a list of names. It's what we do when we come across this list or a genealogy, and we say, well, that's not important. I speed-read too. But they're important. You know what's important about the genealogies of the Bible? What's important and relevant about the genealogies is that they exist. Because the genealogies and lists of people establish the historicity, the the truthfulness of the word of God. Critics of the Bible so often say it's just a collection of stories, myths, and legends. Uh, You know, kind of like Paul Bunyan and Jack and the Beanstalk, a story with a good moral. Ever seen a genealogy of Jack and the Beanstalk? Probably not. Do you ever see a place where, where the you know the Paul Bunyan is is shown in correspondence to when he lived in with, with this particular established historic historical figure? No. This is it. this all happened Ezra one one in the first year of the reign of Cyrus, a man that really lived. This this is the truthfulness of God's word. And the other thing we see through these lists is that God knows every sacrificial commitment that his people make. Uh, God God knows. God knows the sacrifices you have made to follow him. That you chose this priority, not that. And so you made this decision, not that one. It goes on to see in, in, in the, uh, verses 64 and following, there is both the serving and the giving. They God tallied. The whole company numbered 42,360 besides the 7,337 servants and maidservants, and, the, and they also had 200 men and women singers. That's where we get our tally. Verse 50, uh, rather 68, when they arrived at the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, some of the heads of the families gave free will offerings towards the rebuilding of the house of God on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for the work 61,000 drachmas of gold and 5,000 minas of silver and 100 priestly garments, which are also uh, costly items. These have all been uh, tallied and and, and counted. 61,000 drachmas of gold is a, 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 a weight. You can measure what those are by weight, 1,133 pounds of gold, which on Friday would have been worth $25.5 million here. And the silver, larger in quantity by some five to six times, 6,250 pounds of silver is worth about $1.5 So these people not only gave by going the sacrifice, they gave financially. Where did that money come from? Back in chapter 1 verse uh, 7, it came from the people who, 6 I believe, uh, people who gave to them. So it seems that when the neighbors gave the money to them, they gave the money to them. It wasn't even going at that point to the temple treasury. You're going, you're going to need a lot of money. And all this money came. A windfall. So they didn't go back poor, they went back actually quite wealthy, but they thought like stewards, not owners. So when they arrived in the nation of Israel, and now the project is supposed to begin, they said, well, that's evidently why God gave us this money. So they gave it, the silver, the gold, because it's all going to be part of the temple project. And so they gave. It's been my privilege to be a part of a church for these decades to see that serving is normal. Giving generously is normal, and I rejoice at that. And and God knows your service, your giving. Some of the things are obvious. If you're up here, they, you know what they do to take care of your babies in the nursery. You know what they do. But there's so many things that nobody knows, right? The finances, that stays private and all that. But God knows every service, every sacrifice, and. Our job, when we come to a season of life, is to say, is there something that God wants me to serve, do, uh, give, because of His work in my life? We looked at these questions earlier this this, uh, morning. Uh, Knowing that God is moving, God-focused, God's Word, circumstances. But we have to understand with a sense of, of, of sober warning that there is also things that are going to prevent us from responding to God at work. It could be because we have this self-focus. It's our default. What makes me feel important? My glory. What's, what's, What's more comfortable to do? What do I enjoy doing? And those good things, often blessings of God, can become barriers preventing us from responding to God at work so sometimes we can say yes that seems to be something that God does but eh, I'm not sure it's that important sometimes we can ignore godly advice and opportunities somebody invites us to do something and by the way if somebody invites you to be in the ministry that does not make it God's will (laughs) that still becomes your choice but but sometimes it is and God has, has, has given you that opportunity because it's something where to, to, you're, you're going to learn, you're going to grow, you're going to impact somebody else. And God is at work. So He is at work. Every piece of life becomes a new season. And so what Ezra and the, the people of Israel experienced here really is mirrored, I think, over and over and over in our lives as well. Will we simply have the seasons change and we don't? will a change of seasons in our life become a turning point where we are going to grow in our knowledge of God and in our service for Him let's pray Heavenly Father thank you so much for uh, your great love for us the way in which you personally have given us salvation the way in which you have personally watched over our life the way that you personally direct us Thank you so much, Lord, for the, uh, the way that uh, the stories in this room are evidence of your personal relationship with them. Help us, Lord, as we uh, experience changing seasons in our life, to be sensitive and instinctively to recognize things that you might have for us to do or not to do. And we would respond to your moving at all times. In Jesus' name. Amen.